0: The following podcast contains explicit materials. It's Monday, November sixth, two thousand seventeen. From Slate, it's the Gist. I'm Mike Pasca. Another mass shooting: twenty six killed, apart from the shooter, that is one fewer person than the total number killed in Sandy Hook. If you include the shooter's mother there, but not the shooter. Pulse in Orlando that was more. Vegas was more. Aurora a less deadly killing fewer died at the hands of the San Bernardino terrorists as well. Now, I've just listed a few of the 10 deadliest shootings in the United States, but the ones I've listed, for the most part, the gunmen relied on a weapon that was an AR-15 or an AR-15 type assault rifle. It's true that the AR-15 isn't used in the vast majority of gun deaths, a really, really small number in fact. And I've kind of change my mind about how I process that one fact in the argument. I used to think these are the big high-profile shootings that get our attention, but they don't really get to the root of the gun problem. That may be true, but I've thought about it a different way. I'm going to tell you about that in a second. It is true, however, that our gun homicide problem is not an AR-15 problem, but it's also true that our gun mass slaughter problem is an AR-15 problem. Now, the president and others will say it is a mental illness problem. Yes, or actually, the best we could say is maybe, who knows? Uh, These shooters might just be on one side of mentally ill, but the other side of real, real asshole. But grenade launchers are banned. No one dies in America from grenade launchers. If they weren't banned, mentally ill people, or at least some real assholes, would get a hold of grenade launchers. They'd kill people, and while we were picking up various body parts, politicians or lobbyists, maybe from the NGLA, would say, you know, it's not a grenade launcher problem. It's a mental illness problem. So now let's go back to the idea that I once discounted. It is true. AR-15 is a small slice, a small subset of gun homicides. This is how I think of it now. Isn't that fact, while true, isn't that really using the denominator All the gun homicides, the denominator to excuse the inexcusable numerator. Look, most sexual assault in America wasn't done by Harvey Weinstein. But does that mean we shouldn't rise up against and, dare I say, prosecute Harvey Weinstein for the assault he has done? That, Harvey Weinstein, AR-15s, that won't solve the problem. And I'm told that laws don't solve the problem. It's true. We have all these laws on the books and people are still breaking the law. But why is it, alone with guns, do supporters of gun rights use that as an argument against gun laws? Well, people, criminals, are still going to want to break the law. Yes, as is true with embezzling or improperly storing meat. No law would solve this problem. Actually, I think some would. I live in a city which essentially has a ban on AR-15s and no one gets killed in my city with AR-15s. Yeah, I know. Criminals are still going to break the law. That's what makes them criminal. It doesn't mean eradicating all laws. Or with assault rifles, it doesn't mean ever enacting them in the first place. On the show today, Brazil. Donna, not the country. Not even the song that Frank Sinatra once sang and Terry Gilliam made a movie about. It's Donna, Brazil. But first, we will interview the co-director and co-producer of a 10-part documentary series that I found captivating and devastating. Lynn Novick is the co-director of the PBS series, The Vietnam War. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks, it's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity, using the most robust of materials. Ready for a wide range of adventures. The Defender Family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130. That seats up to eight. Learn more at landroverusa.com forward slash Defender. Lindovic is the co-director and co-producer of the 10-part 18-hour series, The Vietnam War, that's been airing on PBS since September. Novick started working with Ken Burns on his masterpiece, The Civil War. She was an associate producer on that, and she was a producer of jazz, Frank Lloyd Wright, and baseball. That last series that I mentioned, Baseball, was the comparison I first made to Novick when we met at her Midtown offices last week. Lynn Novick, thanks for uh, taking some time to talk to me.
1: My pleasure. Great to be here.
0: So, one difference between Civil War and Vietnam is live interviews that you conduct versus the historical record. And baseball had live interviews, but the stakes are a little different when you're asking Bob Costas what he thought of, you know, the 86 World Series versus when you're talking to someone about the most traumatic experience of their life. Uh, Have you done that sort of interviewing before?
1: Yes, I have been doing many interviews for the films that Ken and I have done together since our Frank Lloyd Wright film. So that was 20 years ago. I did most of the interviews for that film and most of the interviews for the film on the Second World War. Mm-hmm. And then I did most of the interviews for this film. So, but I would say that over the course of that, the last 20 years, the subject has gotten more intense, more wrenching, more devastating, and more demanding.
0: And do I have this right? I mean, I just read some press accounts, but. Well, you tell me, what's the breakdown of um, responsibility between you and Ken on a documentary like this?
1: You know, I I really can't answer that. There's not really a specific breakdown. It's very fluid. Um, We work together creatively at every stage of the project to shape the film and to figure out what stories we're going to tell and how we're going to tell them. And it's really just Ken and me in collaboration with our writer, Jeff Ward, who's an enormously important part of this process, and our producer, Sarah Botstein, who's also extremely important to what we do. And the four of us really strategize at every moment about what, you know, what is the overall concept of this film? Okay, how are we going to tell this story? So for Vietnam, it was we're going to tell the story from the top down and the bottom up through the eyes of people who lived through it. And I made the very strenuous argument that we needed to include Vietnamese voices as well. Mm -hmm. Not that anybody disagreed with me, but it was sort of a okay, that's a good idea. But how are we going to do that? Exactly. We've never done anything like that. You're going to go to Vietnam. You're going to find people. How are we going to do that? Are the American audiences really going to care? You know, everybody agreed it was the right thing to do, but the onus was on me and Sarah to make it happen.
0: Was there a difference in the kind of interview or the kind of emotion comparing the World War II veteran Mm -hmm. to the Vietnam veteran?
1: I think that there perspectives are very different in some ways and also very similar. The way that they're similar I would say is that people who have been in combat and who have survived are carrying an enormous weight of sometimes survivor guilt, post-traumatic, you know, experiences, conflicted feelings about what they did and what was done. And for Second World War veterans, they came back to a country that embraced them and that was proud of what we had done and didn't really want to know about the ugly side of the war. So they kind of buried that. Yeah. There wasn't really room to come home and talk to your family about bodies blown apart and, you know, people killed while trying to surrender and just the horrendous things that happen in war. But there was a lot of pride in what we had done. So they could sort of hold their head high and be able to sort of come back into society and live their lives with a lot of baggage. And some people never got over it. With Vietnam, you have all the same tremendous challenges of being a combat veteran then you layer on top of that coming home to a country that was bitterly divided depending on when you came home if not overtly against the war and sometimes in your own family sometimes in yourself and the way the war was conducted which was an asymmetrical war with you know hard to tell who the enemy is and civilians getting the brunt of it extremely difficult to talk about and to live through
0: Did you feel that you were pulling out of some of the subjects things that they hadn't articulated to anyone or at least anyone in public before?
1: That's a great distinction. Thank you for making it. (laughs) Seriously, because I don't want to make a grand claim that people told us things they had never said to anyone I think it's definitely true that people were telling us things they had never said in public, because most of the people we interviewed had not spoken in public, period, about their experiences in the war. They're not famous people, and most of them had never been interviewed before. It was a huge risk to sit down in front of a camera with us and talk about things that are hard to talk about. And, they're, you know, we always we have this kind of conceit. It's sort of like we're sitting here and you're saying to me we're just having this conversation. But I have in the back of my mind I know it's going to be listened to by other people. Yeah. They know we're having a private conversation, just you know me and this veteran, and it's very intimate and close and connected, but they also realize somewhere deep down that this conversation could be seen by millions of people. So they're being very brave to take a huge risk, and you see that happening over and over again in the film. People kind of take a breath, and you see them sort of decide, okay, <clears throat> I'm going to tell you this thing that I really don't want to talk about.
0: And so often what they tell you is it's not just that the facts of it are harrowing or the emotion is there. There is a real terrible and horrible poetry to the way they phrase it. The flesh is cooked off his ankles and I could feel him now talking feel it now, talking about being napalmed or Caputo talking about Americans rolling into Paris and it sure didn't work out that way. I mean, there are so many phrases that I said to myself. Not that it was rehearsed, but is this guy a public speaker? Is that his Mm. shtick? Has he done this before? (laughs)
1: Okay, so the two examples that you pulled are, those are people who are reporters who've written about the war, Joe Galloway and Phil Caputo, and we do have a few other, what we would call ringers, you know, Tim O'Brien and Carl Marlantis. But by ringers, I mean
0: chronicler chroniclers, people who are there.
1: Right, ringers only in the sense that we say mostly it's ordinary people, Mm -hmm. quote-unquote ordinary people, who've never spoken about their experiences. That is certainly not true of Joe Galloway, Phil Caputo, Carl Marlantis, or Tim O'Brien. Right. They have all spoken about their experiences. Most of the people, like a John Musgrave, who you get to know in the oh. film, he does speak publicly to veterans, not in, you know, not in front of a camera. So some of the things he told us, he's probably figured out how to explain what is really unexplainable. Yeah. And so I have a feeling he's familiar with talking about some of the things he talked about, not everything. But many people, there's a poetry and just how people express themselves that we look for.
0: I wouldn't even know the way in. Where do you even start?
1: Yeah, that that was the question we asked ourselves. What are we going to do? We know we want to do this. How do we do it? And we very luckily got connected to a guy named Tom Vallely, who is at the Kennedy School at Harvard. He's a Vietnam veteran, and he got involved in politics after the war, and he then got involved in developing programs in Vietnam through Harvard and through the Fulbright Program to educate Vietnamese, sort of mid-level government officials. And so he's extremely well-connected in Vietnam. He knows everybody who's important, and he was willing to help us. He became our senior advisor, and he introduced us to people in the government in Vietnam and to a Vietnamese producer, Ho Ho Dang Hoa, who helped us there. And we essentially told the government, look, we're going to make a film about the human story of the war. We want it to be from all sides, not just Americans, because... You know, just telling the American side of the story seems like a complete waste of time. We really want to understand what it was like for the Vietnamese and not just from the leadership, but from the perspective of ordinary people. The officials that we spoke to said, wow, you know, we never really think about the war in those terms. And what can we do to help you? And I made four trips to Vietnam over the course of the project to get to know people and to spend time with them and share meals and just the same kind of things we do here and then go back with a camera and sit down and do interviews.
0: So there's certainly a reluctance, which uh, I I guess has abated in recent years for the veterans, the American veterans, to talk about it. It's more social, whereas that country is, you know, Freedom House does not rate them as an open society. Did you sense any of that, that some of what was prescribed about what they could talk to you was essentially by government decree, either explicitly or implicitly?
1: Before I went there I expected that to be the case that there would be sort of you know great reluctance to speak openly and honestly about the war. And so I was very pleasantly surprised to find you know we didn't have a government minder with us. We didn't have anyone telling us what questions to ask or what we could or couldn't use. It was important for the people that we interviewed to know and we were able to tell them that the government has given a permission for you to speak with us. Right. And we never felt any kind of reluctance and often people would say we never tell the truth about the war. And we want our children and grandchildren to know what it was really like. And so we're going to tell you. And over and over again, you sort of see people take a deep breath and say, yeah, we we really want to tell you. And I think the parts of the narrative that are hard for the Vietnamese to reckon with is the scale of losses that they suffered and kind of the culpability or responsibility for those in charge, whether lives were wasted. Could they have managed to unify their country without losing 3 million people, and in this country of 30 million people, that's a lot of people. And so, you know, did the government tell them the truth about the war when it was happening, about the losses, about the the stakes, about how long it was going to take, about what they were fighting for?
0: So one big difference, I mean, I saw parallels not only between that you we were explicitly trying to communicate between the american and the vietnamese side but i saw parallels between the vietnamese side and your civil war documentary the union side there was an incredible loss but ultimately it was in the service of a victory that kind of changes everything and i also sense that when they would consider where we lied to was this the best decision they always come back to i don't know but in the end you know it worked out whereas for america it was exactly the opposite
1: I couldn't say it better myself. That's very astute. It's a lot easier to reckon with a war when you have the victory than when you have the loss. It's interesting because the war, the film is now being shown in Vietnam. Yeah. We have a Vietnamese subtitled totally version. Uncensored. Totally, totally uncensored. Yeah. Totally uncensored. It's streaming. It was streaming. When it, when it streamed on PBS, you could click on Vietnamese and watch it. And that stream was available in Vietnam. PBS made it available for anyone in Vietnam to watch it. We unblocked that territory. And it's now available, I think, on a YouTube channel that PBS has as well, because the streaming window has closed for the whole series here. And millions of people have watched it. And I I just had an email today from someone who has a Vietnamese student studying in the U.S. who said everybody in Vietnam back home is watching and talking about the film. Mm. It's it's exposing what the war was actually like. And it's they had total censorship during the war. So all the propaganda is not just what the words were, but the images. They were shown victorious soldiers happily marching off to war. They were not shown mangled bodies and the piles of corpses and mothers screaming and crying over their lost children. So those kind of images are now entering into their collective memory or uh, consciousness of what the war really was. And if you're in the North, people went off to the South and they just never came back.
0: So as I watch this, I think it's inevitable not to come away with just the feeling that it resonates today the, the the echoes of exactly policy decisions and the way we make decisions pre 911 uh, when there was a period of general peace you know before war was thrust upon us i think it would have seemed more like an academic exercise when the biggest foreign entanglement in our minds was i don't know noriega or um some other Caribbean islands airstrip, right? But now it just seems so much more present.
1: I completely agree. You know, we, we decided to make the film in 2006. And there was a time from the time when the Vietnam War ended in 75, through the first Gulf War and the small little engagements that you're talking about, that it seemed we had learned the lessons of Vietnam. We wouldn't get ourselves involved in asymmetrical warfare where we have to invade a foreign country that hasn't attacked us and, you know, we don't know if the local people are our friends or our enemies and we're up against forces that we don't understand, we don't speak the language. It's a must be for disaster. It did seem that we had been humbled enough by Vietnam that we wouldn't do that again. And in fact, the military had pretty much promised itself it wouldn't do that again. And they tried to learn the lessons of Vietnam. And one of the lessons was, we're never going to fight a war like that again. We're going to learn how we're, what we were good at is conventional war. And we're going to get even better at that. And we're going to have an all volunteer army. And we're going to basically be in control. We're not going to let the press wander around without any controls on them. And they managed to do that very successfully through the first Gulf War. And then The wheels came off. I mean, it's really devastating to think. And I wonder whether one of the veterans I talked to, I remember he said, you know, those of us who went through the Vietnam War and came away thinking that it was tragic and people's lives were lost and for no good reason, we hoped that at least the price we paid had been the price needed to teach our country a very, very important lesson. And then after we invaded Iraq and Afghanistan, we began to think, wait, yeah." it was even more devastating because we had the chance to learn the lesson not to do this. And then here we are doing it again.
0: Yeah. And that's why I know John McCain saw it and John Kerry saw it and Bob Kerry saw it. No matter what their politics are, those who were in Vietnam look at the current entanglements in the way you just described. Cause why, how could we not have learned our lesson? And the answer is because the people planning the current war weren't around or exactly. don't care. or didn't didn't never, never knew the lesson firsthand. <laughs>
1: You know, it's it's really it's it was one of the things I find most devastating about this story is, what does it take to have this lesson actually become a permanent lesson and not just something that you only can hold on to for a generation, and then you forget about it? But if they were there, they didn't weren't directly affected by it, and they felt that that lesson didn't apply to them. Yeah, they they knew the lesson, but they thought this was different. It or was that, theoretical
0: it was in a book. We'll do it better this time. There are enough circumstances that are different. It's not. A land war in Southeast Asia.
1: (laughs) Right. No, right. Every circumstance is different. Exactly right. And we have a lot of advantages we didn't have then. But we have some of the same disadvantages. Right.
0: So I wanted to ask you a question about your, I guess, the grammar of your filmmaking. And Mm -hmm. I could have picked a lot of examples. But this is just one that I was writing about. And it was about that Caputo quote. You kind of thought at first that It was going to be like the G.I.s, you know, rolling through Paris after the liberation. Well, it sure didn't work out that way. So the visual there is we see the grainy footage of the soldier and he has a gun and it's in a village. Mm -hmm. And then as Caputo is talking in the background, he says what he has to say, which is essentially an indictment of uh, trying to win over hearts and minds. And then... As he's saying it, the camera pans and we see a blindfolded villager on the ground. Now, I was just thinking about how 99 out of 100 documentarians would show that. And I think it would be edited for maximum impact. Like Caputo saying, it didn't work out that way. Boom, we see it's the villager. It's the you know punch in the gut moment. But how you guys do it, it's more of the accrual. It washes over you. You could certainly manipulate your images and your words and your music in any way, but it seems like you don't go for the combination visual spoken gut punch as much as at the end of an episode. uh, The totality of it is what affects you. The experience is more like an ulcer than a gut shot.
1: Yeah. And, you know, there's a 10 year Americans, right. And I would love to sit down and really analyze some of the key moments in the film where that exact question is at the forefront. There are many, I mean, we have atrocities or just implied atrocities or damage done to innocent people. We could sort of stop right there and freeze frame or, you know, make you look at that situation in greater length, but you'll see things like that over and over and over again in the course of the film. So if you watch the whole thing, the accumulated power, will be that you will, I think, have to look at what was really going on over there.
0: Do you expect to one day do a story about our engagements in Afghanistan and Iraq?
1: I really hope we can. I would really love to try to figure out what happened there once we know. Those are going to be hard stories to tell and maybe dangerous stories to tell. But um, the lack of press access is going to make it really challenging but the social media and all the sort of ways that soldiers document their lives would be really interesting. Right. So we've talked to a number of veterans have now our reporters and have done interviews with us and stuff over the last six months and have been saying, when are you going to do our war? It would be a huge challenge and it'd be an important project to try to do. I'm not sure when.
0: Linovic, Thank you so much.
1: My pleasure. Thank you, Mike.
0: And now the spiel. Donna Brazil was brought in practically dragooned to right the ship after the Democratic National Committee chairwoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz found herself engulfed in a scandal that threatened to detract from the election. When Brazil found out the fundraising and logistical mess that she was inheriting, She, to her credit, knew not to distract from the presidential election. She waited until November of an off year to drop allegations that Hillary Clinton loyalists had essentially captured the political party and were calling the shots. Could have waited till, I don't know, later in November, just any date after the first Tuesday, after the first Monday, could have waited till December. But then, of course, you miss a few weeks of the Christmas shopping season. Donna Brazile on ABC's This Week says there was really no such thing as good timing with these revelations. Do you think this helps for the book to come out? I,
2: well, George, I mean, d- this is a lesson of 2016. If I released it la- next year, they would say, Donna, you're impacting on 2018. If I release it, the, Donna, you're, you're impacting. George, for those who are telling me to shut up, they told Hillary that a couple of months ago. You know what I tell them? Go to hell. You tell me to shut up, you go to hell. Wait a minute, you're telling me to go to hell? You shut up!
0: Discourse raised and seen. Brazil's main claim was that the nomination process was rigged for Hillary Clinton. It wasn't illegal, she said, but it seemed unethical, to which Donald Trump tweeted, leading with his adorably ethnically insensitive nickname for Elizabeth Warren, Pocahontas just stated that the Democrats, led by the legendary crooked Hillary Clinton, rigged the primaries. Let's go, FBI and Justice Department. That tweet, by the way, while not illegal, is clearly unethical and also inappropriate. But was the nomination rigged? You know, it depends what you mean by rigged. One definition is manipulated to guarantee an outcome. The outcome was not guaranteed. Another definition is manipulated to favor an outcome. And yes, in that sense, it was rigged. By the way, a third definition is trumped up. But my brain's going to explode if I consider that for too long. But I really don't know how high my dudgeon could get over this one. Political parties have been working to achieve specific outcomes since there have been political parties. Isn't that why there are political parties? There is a notable exception to this. Republicans 2016. How'd that go? Hillary Clinton had money. The DNC didn't. Clinton gave money. There were strings attached. Unethical? It wasn't unethical for Hillary. It would be mispractice if Hillary didn't press her advantage in any way she could. Was it unethical for the DNC? Maybe it was, but the DNC was weak. The DNC was in poor negotiating position. The DNC, as led by Debbie Wasserman Schultz, didn't have a scintilla of motivation besides getting Hillary Clinton elected and therefore nominated.
2: This is why Donna Brazile playing oncologist after the fact rings hollow. I found the cancer, but I'm not killing the patient, was this memorandum that prevented the DNC from running running its own operation.
0: The DNC being broke prevented the DNC from running its operation. Team Hillary was being a politician pressing an advantage. Not free, fair, open, or forthright, but good politics until you lose and Donna Brazile scorches you do you think Donna Brazile would have come out with these allegations if we were 11 months into a Clinton presidency? Hmm. Hmm. You know, I can't, could you come in here and scratch my chin for me? I've just been scratching it. Hmm. Hmm. Let's all scratch your chins. Everyone scratch their chin. Hmm. Okay. So the question is, would Clinton have won otherwise, without, without the uh, strings, without the fact that she could make some arrangements as to what time of day the debates were or who was to be hired in communication positions, you know, without putting a finger, even if it was a pinky or ring finger on the scales? Who knows? Most evidence points strongly to Hillary Clinton would have won the nomination anyway. Then again, most evidence pointed to her not just winning the nomination, but also the general election. Now, another part of Donna Brazile's allegations was that she was unsure if Hillary would win. When Bernie called her, she said, I'll quote from uh, what she wrote, I had to be frank with him. I did not trust the polls, I said. I told him I had visited states around the country and I found a lack of enthusiasm for her everywhere. I was concerned about the Obama coalition and about millennials. You know, there could be a really fun industry in contrasting that statement with Donna Brazile's many, many media appearances right before the election. Here she is on Rachel Maddow. It's an interview exactly three weeks before election day. The premise was that Hillary had three options. One, she could play a conservative and win, assure her win, but just win with the states that she was pretty sure she was going to win with. Or she could swing for the fences. She could go huge. And a third option was she could swing for the fences, but even if she didn't win in states like Utah and Texas... That would help other candidates down ballot. Donna Brazil was asked about these three choices.
1: Are those three scenarios, is that a reasonable way to look at it in terms of the strategic thinking for you guys at this point?
2: Absolutely. Look, we've always stated from day one that we would not just focus on the battleground states. They are very, very important. We want to make sure that there are adequate resources, staff, field, uh, field offices, as well as media, mail, you name it, but also the expansion states. I, I was very excited when I heard about six weeks ago that we had resources to begin to look at Georgia, look at Arizona, look at Utah, look at more states, including uh, Texas. So it's very... I didn't hear in that answer
0: any thought about a weakness with millennials or a lack of enthusiasm. The tenor was, look, we all know she's going to win. What's the smartest way to win this thing? And then Maddow and Brazil got to talking about the danger of how Trump was framing this election.
2: And while Donald Trump is out there talking about a rigged election because he's not reaching out to voters where they live, work, uh, play, and, and pray... Maddow went on to note that talk of a rigged election
0: was dangerous and that Trump might be demoralizing his own vote while Trump's still talking about a rigged election. The talk was just as true then as it is now, which is to say not. Now, of course, I don't really begrudge the chair of the DNC for talking up her candidate's chances in the lead up to voting. I don't believe that she had no concerns about Hillary's electoral chances, you know, experienced political operatives always have concerns. I think it's fine for Donna Brazil to disclose the agreements like she did, the facts of them, put them in a book, that's fine. But it does seem that she's unfairly characterizing the entire process in a way that has gotten away from her. I mean, there she was on this week trying to walk back the word rigged.
2: Do you agree with Elizabeth Warren that the primaries were rigged? I I don't think she she meant the word rigged because what I said, George, as you well know, after I left this show back on July 24th, I said I would get to the bottom of everything. And that's what I did. And I called Senator Sanders to say, you know, I wanted to make sure there was no rigging in the process. I'm on the Rules and Bylaws Committee. I found no evidence, none whatsoever. Ultimately, it seems that in the name of introducing some sunlight
0: into the process, she stepped right into the spotlight and now all anyone can discern is the glare. And that's it for today's show. The Gist was produced by Pierre BNMA. This was his first day on the job as producer of The Gist. He has been getting the Reader's Digest feed and found out that we are in fact a daily show and that sometimes we use naughty language. Mary Wilson, GIST producer, was also shocked to find out that we are a daily show, but that's only because she has that memento disease where her mind erases every 15 minutes. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcast, his greatest innovation in that job was to insist that we only hire producers with the memento disease. The GIST. People with the memento disease are the best people. Or maybe they used to be the best people 16 minutes ago. Really hard to say. oom and thanks for listening.